You're listening to Time in the Word. You will remember that in his opening remarks, Paul defended his apostleship against those who had tried to discredit him. After describing the work of the gospel, he then pronounced a divine curse on anyone who would distort the gospel of grace. In the remainder of chapter 1, he once again takes up the issues of his authority and messages, defending himself against the false charges of his critics. In today's study of Galatians 1, verses 10 through 24, Dr. Gonzalez will discuss Paul's ministry priority and motivation, the source of his message, the evidence of the power of the gospel, Paul's persecution of the church prior to his conversion, and Paul's calling to be a preacher of the gospel. As God ministers to you through this series of studies, and as you experience God's love and grace in your own life, share these podcasts with others so that they too may be blessed by God's word and his amazing grace. Let us listen as Dr. Gonzalez continues his expository study of Paul's epistle to the Galatians. You will recall that in his opening remarks, Paul defended his apostleship against those who had tried to discredit him. Verse 10 tells us that. After describing the work of the gospel in verse 4, he then pronounced a divine curse on anyone who would distort the gospel of grace. We saw that this morning, verses 6 through 9. In the remainder of this chapter, he once again takes up the issue of his authority and message, defending himself against the false charges of his critics. Now, Before we go any further, I think it's important or it will be at least helpful to have an outline of Galatians clearly in mind. Galatians, the letter itself, the epistle falls neatly into three sections. There's biography, there is theology, and there's ethics. Each has two chapters dedicated to that overall or overarching theme. In the first two chapters, Paul recounts his own spiritual autobiography. So in chapters 1 and 2, we find a section that we would classify biography. His life story shows that he is a true apostle who preaches the true gospel of free grace. The first section of this uh, letter may be summarized like this, and I'll read it in verses 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul understood that people had to accept his apostleship before they could accept the gospel. The theology of the one true gospel is expanded in chapters 3 and 4, and essentially it is the theology of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, which, by the way, was the material cause of the Protestant Reformation. Among the various issues that led to the Reformation, at the forefront, that's why we call it the material cause, what mattered, what was of first importance, was essentially why this epistle was written to start with. At stake was the gospel. So the, the, the chapters 3 and 4, and essentially the theology, is all about justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And a good theme verse for this section 
of Paul's letter comes right from the middle of verse of chapter 3, which is verse 11, which says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And then finally, the book concludes with two chapters of ethics. Paul takes his theology, and as he does with all his letters, and applies it to daily life. So what does it all mean? How does it all look to us? How, does, how, is, it, how is it manifested, demonstrated in the Christian life? And probably a good verse would be chapter 5, verse 6, that says, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So this is the logic of Galatians. Live by the gospel that you can receive only by faith. What God has done, chapters 1 and 2, teaches us that we should believe the theology of chapters 3 and 4 and how we should live the ethics of chapters 5 and 6. So that's kind of the overarching outline for the book of Galatians. Now let's look at the actual text before us. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. It's an interesting passage because unless we slow down enough to look at the terms that he's using, we fail to realize that he is addressing just in this verse alone things about his past, present, and future, at least as it pertains to his motivations. Paul wasn't, and if there was, among other things, one thing he wanted to be clear about was that he was not competing in a popularity popularity contest. He had no motive other than to please the Lord Jesus Christ. That was his only motivation. Paul knew that it was impossible to please men and God at the same time. There's no middle ground when it comes to serving Christ. What lesson is there for us to learn what is our motivation for things? What, why are we doing what we do? And how committed and devoted are we in doing it for the glory of God? Christ must come first. Paul never played politics. He never sought to bring honor to himself. His desire was always and only to magnify and honor the Lord. In this verse, there's a series of two questions he denied, in which he denies that he attempted to please men with his message. And both questions raise the whole issue of motivation. And again, let's figure out how this applies to us as well. Our motives. First, he dealt with the present attitude. Notice what he says. Am I, and the key word here is now. Present tense. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Now, if you remember verses 6 through 9, you remember that he uses very harsh language. And that harsh language 
clearly demonstrate that he was not interested in pleasing men, or he wouldn't have said what he said, at least the way he said it, but most likely wouldn't have even said what he said. It would have been a more politically correct response, if at all brought up. He did attempt to persuade both sinners and rebellious Christians to be reconciled to God, but he did it in order to gain divine approval at the judgment seat of Christ. Am I trying to win the approval of men? The the answer has to be no. Then whose approval is he trying to gain? The answer is obvious, God's. However, he does not tell men what they wanted to hear, but he tells men what they needed to hear. And that's a difficult pill to swallow for all of us. Because it's often that we engage in conversation even with people we love, people who are very close to us. People who we have concerns about saying something without being injurious, offensive, rude, critical, judgmental. But it still has to be said. Why? Because at the end of the day, what's at stake? A soul forever. So, though he was not interested in in, in, in pleasing men, and he was interested more in, the, in receiving the approval of God, he always sought to bring or to reconcile sinners and rebellious Christians to God by telling them not what they wanted to hear, but what they needed to hear. When you think of the cultural and religious background of many of the listeners, one thing it's very, that's very evident in this passage is that regardless of that cultural background, And you have an assortment of all sorts of people there. You know you have Judaizers. You know you have Gentiles. Uh, You know you have people who have come out from other religious backgrounds in which uh, polytheism and and all sorts of other belief systems were part of, of that religion. One thing we do clearly see from Paul is that no matter what the cultural or religious background it, didn't, it never affected the content of his message. That's the one thing that must always remain constant. Again, because according to verses 6 through 9, there is only one true gospel. Any other message is no gospel at all. So regardless of who he spoke to, regardless of that listener's background, the message always remained constant. The gospel is the gospel. It was always the same. He once wrote in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, he says, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That's it. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Greek, whether you're Colombian, American, Korean, whether you're black or white or Asian, we preach only Christ crucified. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. He says, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to, the go- to Gentiles. Now, interesting, 
at least something that you can sort of draw out of that particular final statement in that passage is that even though it is a stumbling block to some and foolishness to others, the message remains the same. It will then be a stumbling block forever to such people and foolishness forever to such people. We will not change the message to accommodate anybody. So Paul is very clear about that here. We live in a different time than Paul did, and even during the time of Paul, things were evolving. Christianity was spreading rapidly. Uh, The church was growing exponentially in many areas of uh, of of the known world at the time. It's interesting to see that Paul adapted his method of evangelization based on where he was and who he was speaking to. He adapted the message of evangelization to his audience but the message always remained the constant. We can do evangelism in different ways. Our method of evangelism may differ from the church down the street. That doesn't matter. What matters is what are we evangelizing the lost with? That's a non-negotiable. It is with compassion that he exclaimed in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, to the weak I became weak. To win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some with that one gospel. So to the pagans he referred to the God of creation. To uh, 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 the Jews he pointed to the revelation of God in the Old Testament. But his message, through and through, and I mean, don't take my word for it, read all of his epistles. His message always centered in redemption through faith in Jesus Christ. That was it. Now the second question, so the first question addressed the, his present motivation. The second question pointed to future aspirations. Notice, or am I trying to please men see and, and this is you know for paul you know, I, I you know we, we we sometimes reach conclusions or we sometimes make assumptions that that shouldn't be made we 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 think that for paul perhaps making uh certain choices uh came easy i'm not sure about that paul was like all of us. Yes, he had experiences that none of us will have. But at the end of the day, he, by his own admission, struggled with many of the same things we struggle with in this life. I mean, we have different positions as to why the thorn in the flesh, what that might have been. But we do know that the thorn in the flesh was there to constantly remind him of who he was who he was not, whom he belonged to, and what his calling was. To remain constantly humbled and dependent upon his Lord. And as a result, he makes the point of not caring much about the outward evaluation of his ministry by men. Is that true of us? Or do we care about what people say? 
And do we do or not do certain things because of what people might say? He, he, he couldn't allow that to be a driving influence in his ministry. He knew who called him, why he was called, and he was committed to the task. In fact, he even welcomed divine scrutiny. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, listen to what he says. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. If you don't think my motives are right, test my motives, is what he's saying. He had no problem with being scrutinized. He welcomed scrutiny. Was he offended because the Bereans would go back and open the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true? He acknowledges and calls us all to do the same thing. And then Paul admits that he had been at one point a man pleaser but that he no longer was. Notice what he says, if I were still trying. Well, still trying implies what? That he used to. He at one point was a man pleaser. That was his motivation. As a law-loving Pharisee, he desired to please his superiors. His conversion is what radically brought a change about in Paul's life, a change in his purpose a change in his motivation. No man can be, and Paul says it, no man can be a pleaser of men and at the same time a servant of Christ. No man can serve two masters. No person can preach what Christ wants him to proclaim and what unregenerate people want him to say. It's one or the other. Before men, Paul was an apostle, but before Christ, he was a servant. Verses 11 and 12, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Paul receives his commission and his call by divine revelation Notice that his, he says that his message did not come from man nor school. Not that school is bad, but when God begins the process of building his church, there was no seminary equipped to equip Paul at the time. It had to come from divine revelation, face to face, as we would say, with the builder of that church. It has to be distilled pure theology. He says that the origin of the gospel is God himself. Man was not involved in presenting the gospel to Paul. We recall by, 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 by the book of Acts that, 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 that um, God met Paul personally on the Damascus road. And it was by divine revelation that Paul becomes acquainted with the Savior. It's interesting, in Acts chapter 9, and I'll just read these portions to you, Paul said, well, before I get to Acts chapter 9, Paul said, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. You recall in Acts 9 that when Paul said, Who are you, Lord? Remember? 
And the answer came back, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You know what Paul realized? At that very moment, Paul realized that Jesus Christ was the Lord of glory. It was there that he was converted, called, and commissioned. Now, having been challenged so far for his authority and message, Paul calls their attention to what he was before his changed life. Don't miss what is being presented here, because sometimes in, 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 in epistles or even in narratives, um, something new may not be necessarily being presented, but something somewhat mundane appears to be what is being said. And because it appears to us to be somewhat mundane, we read through it without slowing down enough to see what there is to glean from that mundane passage that will benefit us in our own Christian life. When he talks about who he was before becoming a Christian, one of the things that I want you to notice here is he is presenting, in essence, indisputable evidence that once a person meets the person of Jesus Christ, he will never, by definition, be the same. His own life was proof of that. And that's what he starts presenting. What he's doing here is presenting not just, by the way, this is who I was. He's saying, look at the evidence before you so as to become convinced that what I am saying is true. It was part of the way in which he presented the gospel. If the gospel could change the man who was hoping to destroy the church and make him now the number one defender of that church, what does that? And that's sort of the point that he's looking to make when he presents his past. You recall that when Peter and John were before Caiaphas and the other leaders for preaching the gospel and healing the lame man, Caiaphas and the others got their heads together and they said this, listen, what are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows that they have done an outstanding miracle. Don't lose the last few words. And we cannot deny it. Paul's conversion, the man who he became after meeting Christ, was undeniable evidence of the grace of God, of the power of the gospel. A deluded gospel does not result in such a changed life. They could argue their theology. We do that all the time today between religions and between evangelical conservatives and liberals. They could argue the methods of ministry, but what they could not argue with was the results. The same was true with the life of Paul. His life serves as a clear illustration of the power of the gospel. His life was proof that the gospel works, that the gospel accomplishes what is said to accomplish if a person surrenders his life to the Lord of that gospel. And as we've said last week, the only way we can 
is when God, by His grace, does the miracle He has to do that we so casually call the opening of our eyes to see the truth. Because prior to that, according to Scripture, we were dead. And last I knew, dead people do nothing. And not only were we dead, but because of our deadness, we do not seek after God. Verses 13, 14. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. Now listen, sort of at least part of what he's saying here is listen, I had everything to gain and in fact I had gained everything in my previous religious life. Why would I give all that up to now be the one persecuted for embracing and propagating the very thing I at one point said is untrue and ought to be extinguished from the face of the earth? What does that? The word or the term or the expression way of life speaks of behavior, conduct, or manner of life. Application or importance here, it carries the idea of lifestyle. Hmm? What does that tell us? What are we supposed to glean from that today? Well, not what we say with our lips, but what we say with our lives is what matters. More often than not. Because the truth of the matter is, I tend to walk to my right, I'm right-handed, I'm... Uh, Oftentimes, we don't have opportunities to engage in conversations regarding spiritual things with unbelievers or others because in their mind, we've, we haven't earned the right to do so because they've seen so many inconsistencies that whatever you have to say, I can't really possibly want because it has nothing to contribute to my current state. All it's going to do is allow me to now say I'm something that I know I really am not. Which is what you are, Christian. Hmm? So Paul is saying, listen, you know, it's not always necessarily what you're going to say with your mouth, but it is always necessarily going to be what you say with your life. Paul had an impressive reputation when it came to his religion. Do we? What would people say if they were interviewed without your knowledge and without the interviews ever being acknowledged outside of the interviewers and interviewees? What would they say about your religion? What would they say about the God you claim to worship? About the Savior you claimed or claim saved you? What would they say about your gospel? In fact, is the gospel we're preaching every day the gospel or another gospel? Hmm? Paul testified that he was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews 
of his own age or of his own time. The word advancing means to drive forward or to increase. He says, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Paul was zealous and committed concerning his religion. Few men excelled as Paul did. In fact, he tells us in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 this, if anyone else, if anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, nobody more than me. That's how religious he was. Nobody more than me. In fact, he says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, listen, listen, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul excelled in his religion. But, important to keep in mind here, religion is all it was. Religion is all it is. If you have embraced anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, all you do have to boast about is your religion. Your faultless legalistic righteousness, which I doubt anyway, certainly in my life. But listen, it was a pharisaical system of dead religion and self-righteousness that accomplished Nothing for Paul so far as Paul's real need for salvation was concerned. In other words, Paul is saying, listen, none other like me, folks. If you're banking on religion, I'm the man. I am your Messiah. Just follow my example. Yet the very one who says that he was faultless in his pharisaical system of religion was the one who was now confessing that all it was was religion that ultimately was going to lead him to hell if it were not for the grace of Christ. And we think. And we convince ourselves that we are okay. Verse 13, Paul goes on to say, How intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Webster defines persecuted as meaning harassed by troubles or punishments unjustly inflicted, particularly for religious opinions, which was essentially what Paul was doing, right? He was harassing, punishing, and unjustly inflicting all sorts of murder, persecution, for religious opinions. Paul was a militant legalist who despised with vengeance anyone who would name the name of Christ. That word destroy comes from a Greek word which means to waste or to ravage. The idea is, is that of plundering a defeated city. Paul des, Paul's desire, Paul's intent was to completely eradicate the church. That's what he lived for. I mean, notice how personal how he gets here. How intensely I persecuted the church. He personally was the one doing the persecuting. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 tells us, And Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and all except the apostles who were scattered throughout the church at Samaria. Christians 
began to die. And Paul was saying, Amen and Amen. Now, the hunter became the hunted. How does that happen? Apart from the grace of God. The word approval means to think well of, assent, to feel gratified with. So caught up was Paul with persecuting the church that he actually felt gratified and pleased at the stoning of Stephen. And he actually thought he was doing God a favor. In fact, that matches the very words of our Lord where in John 16, 2, the Lord says, A time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. That's what Paul was doing. Verses 15 and 16. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man. It's interesting that he also tells us that we find this out uh, uh, um, that Paul, after having been converted, goes to essentially meet to the Lord to receive revelation from the Lord. And he ends up going to Jerusalem and spends how much time in Jerusalem? Fifteen days. Would fifteen days be enough to learn how to start up a whole new religion? The point he's simply making here is, listen, clearly 15 days won't accomplish what has been accomplished. Which means that what I am propagating here is not a man thing. It's a God thing. It has to be a God thing. And where did I get it from? I didn't go to the apostles when I first became converted. I went to the apostles long after I became converted. Simply so as to prove a point, in addition to some other things. The point being what Paul was teaching. The gospel he was proclaiming was the gospel of Christ, the gospel of grace. So he talks about the fact that he doesn't go up to Jerusalem to see uh, the apostles. Uh, He talks about the fact that he goes into Arabia. He only spends eventually two weeks with the apostles in Jerusalem. All to make a point here. Now, sort of to close with, with, with a practical application. Is our life, as we're living it today, could our lives, as we're living them today, be used as evidence for Christianity? Is there clearly something going on in us? Are we clearly somebody whom we were not? Are we doing or living in such a way that what we do causes others to realize, hmm, there's weight here. There's something I can't explain and thus makes them, if nothing else, at least now, wonder. And that's the seed, isn't it, sometimes? That's the seed. However we evangelize, how we adapt, to the people to whom we witness is not the issue. The content, the gospel is the issue. That is a non-negotiable. And if we deviate from that, we become Galatians. You understand that? And the implications of that, we become Galatians. To whom, if Paul was living today, he would send a letter just like that one to us. It would arrive in our mailbox. What are the implications?